Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. On this episode of First Lady and Friends, we had Dr. Lexi Kite. She and her sister, Dr. Lindsay Kite, wrote a book called More Than a Body, talking about how we use self-objectification and how we can overcome that. So excited to have you listening on this conversation. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends podcast. We are thrilled today to have a new friend. Um, this this is a, a someone who who I've just recently um, been introduced to, and and just my mind's been blown. Author of an incredible book with um, a co-author, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is uh, welcome to the show, uh, Doctor Lexi Kite. So Hi. nice to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, let's talk about this. Um, I was I was telling you on the way in. Our my my sister who has four daughters, and myself who has three three sons and a and a daughter at the end. I'm just starting to really. It's interesting as a four when when you have a daughter that turns fourteen mm-hmm. and that that age, you start to have a lot of those fourteen year old anxieties coming yeah. back, right? Do you- totally yes. I mean, I I have two daughters. I have a five year old and a almost two year old. Okay, but I'm already experiencing that angst you feel as a kid just. Yeah trying to figure yourself out and your body and a 14 year old. I mean, that's when this stuff begins or or really solidifies like the the body image anxiety, the self-consciousness about how you appear as you go through puberty. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about your book. So you yeah. uh, I just want to introduce you wrote a book with your with your sister. Yeah. Who's a twin sister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is fabulous. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> so great to go through life with a with a cool buddy. Um, I have seven yeah. sisters. Oh, my So gosh. it's it's pretty great now. Yeah, now. <laughs> right? I feel just the same. It, this could have turned out terribly for Lindsay and I, but instead we used our powers for good instead of evil. <laughs> the Wonder Twin powers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Lindsay and I, we've been doing this work in body image for a long time. We... Um, we started our master's degrees in 2007 at the University of Utah and then our PhDs right afterward um, and founded the nonprofit Beauty Redefined in 2009 at the um, culmination of our master's degrees. And so we we never planned to be such twins. You know, <laughs> we really didn't. We've always been ultra competitive. 
And yet we have felt really um, called to this work. Uh, from the time we were 18 years old, um, both of us were sitting in this college classroom. We learned just on the first day about media literacy, like the ability to understand why media is created the way it is, the impact it has on us. And I remember that first day sitting in that class thinking, I have been impacted. Like, maybe people wouldn't know it from the outside. I was always confident. I was class president every year of high school. Everything seemed good for me. But internally, I felt so defined by my body, so self-conscious of how I appeared, that I held myself back from, from life, from happiness. I always thought I was unlovable. I always thought that I needed to be different. And in that classroom, it gave me just the first hint that... Maybe there was work for me to do. And Lindsay had the exact same experience of realizing that, wow, a lot of media messages and so many companies investing billions of dollars per year are trying to get us to believe that we are our bodies, mm -hmm. that girls and women are bodies first and people second. And that as we think about our bodies as our projects, like from the roots of our hair to the color of our toenails, every inch in between – that's how we'll gain like happiness and health mm. and success. And that's a lie. But it doesn't feel like a lie when you grow up feeling self-conscious because from a million angles, even people you know and love, you're hearing that your looks, your beauty, your thinness are the most important things about you. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we've been doing this work for a long time now and it's culminated in this book, the most exciting thing we've done to date. Yeah, so let's talk about it. But let's go back a little bit before we talk really dive into the book. Yeah. Let's let's talk about your background. Where where did you grow up? You know, talk talk to me about your family. You have a twin sister. Yeah. Uh who, who do you have other siblings? Um talk to me about your parents and and just kind of your your beginnings. Yeah. Um we were raised in Idaho Falls, Idaho. My parents still live there. Um I had a really great childhood. We have a little brother named Garrett. Um, he runs Kite Media in Logan um, and is just great. That's all of us. Um, and Lindsay and I, we grew up uh, pretty athletic, competitive swimmers, also competitive spellers on the spelling bee every oh, fantastic. year. <laughs> but swimming is what really took up all of our time. Okay. And the thing about swimming was that it's not necessarily like a, a body conscious sport, but you're wearing a swimsuit. Yeah. And from the time we were little, we were always a little bit chunkier than our friends. You know, we were super athletic. We still hold records in wow. swimming. But the fact that I looked down at my little Lexi thighs when I was eight years old and realized they were bigger than the other girls and started feeling so self-conscious of my legs, not wanting to be on deck during swim meets, that was the beginning for us. And Honestly, the work we do, you don't do like 10 years of college without being really passionate about what you're studying, you know? Yeah. And for us, it's very much a personal thing. It started out, Lindsay and I were kind of try trying to heal our own body image issues and quickly realized that that pain could become our purpose. Like it could become a platform we stand on. And now all these years later, you know, I'm I'm married, I have kids, I've I've gained weight, I've lost weight, I'm older, I look older, I've had surgeries, I've had illnesses, you know, all the things. I've lived in this body. And I can attest to the fact that the work we do, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, is it's different than a lot of the body image work out there. It's because it's centered in resilience. The idea that your pain can become your catalyst to be more. 
to be more than just somebody who copes with your shame and your pain in all the ways we've been taught to by fixing ourselves, by hiding, by sitting on the sidelines until we qualify to be seen and to feel good about ourselves. And so for me and Lindsay, you read in the book that we did quit swimming. We quit when we were 15 years old. We just could not stand to have the cute boys that joined our swim team see us in our swimsuits anymore. Mm. And that set off a few years of never swimming, the thing we loved the most in the whole world that brought us the most joy. But coming back to it and doing this work, it's healed not only our own body image, but thankfully, fortunately, that of so many others who need to see themselves as more, more than parts in need of fixing. And there's so much life-giving potential in that truth. Mm. So you you talk a little bit about the media and 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 the power that it has sort of to to shape our culture and yep. and how we think. Do you what did you experience maybe in your in your home life that it, did it reinforce it did it did it counter what no, you were seeing in media? It. I mean our mom is our biggest fan now. Um, but she grew up steeped in, you know, in objectifying ideals, in sexism, in patriarchy and capitalism and all the things that kind of lead to this perfect storm where women receive their power from beautifying themselves. You know, she she grew up that way like all of us did. It wasn't just southeastern Idaho, but it's right. the culture so many of us share that we can't even see outside of. So all of my family grew up dieting. All of my family grew up from the time we were little. I was dieting from the time I was in seventh grade, which so many of my friends were also doing. All of my good friends, the president of the ballroom team, the editor of the yearbook, they can tell you their weights and their sizes from photos that you show them. But we're not particular in that way. This is, dare I say, universal across the world, especially for girls and women, a million messages from media from the fact that you never see any different body size or representation of beauty outside of one very specific, narrow, unattainable ideal ever represented for women, including in kids' movies and in kids' TV shows, that sets this standard that's kind of cemented in your mind. And so when I was growing up, like my favorite show was Saved by the Bell from the time I was in like yeah. third grade. And Big I ran. <laughs> yes, it's so great. And yet, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Saved by the Bell. There was one chubby girl in the entire series, and she was mocked. She loved Zach, and Zach didn't love her back. And it was, of course, Zach didn't love her back. It was this laughable thing. And yet my body looked more like hers than anybody else I'd ever seen on TV. Mm -hmm. And so when you see that represented so negatively, of course you look down at your own body and you feel subpar. You feel abnormal because we're all comparing ourselves to a standard that isn't even real. That, I mean, so my mom now, she does her absolute best. Life has changed in our family. We don't, we don't talk about bodies like we used to. Our compliments are bigger, you know, Mm -hmm. than talking about, have you lost weight? Oh, it looks like you've been eating good. You know, whatever the thing is, we don't talk like that anymore. We don't, uh, we can talk all about kids, but my kids are raised very differently. Mm -hmm. They're raised learning our mantra from the time they're just tiny. My five-year-old daughter, Logan, knows our mantra, my body is an instrument, not an ornament, by heart. She shares it with people. There was a teenage girl a few weeks ago. She was with our babysitter. And there was a teenage girl there who saw pictures of herself she didn't like. And Logan said, hey, your body is an instrument, not an ornament. 
Oh my and God. that is just such a win, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I have to tell you, literally just this morning, I'm having a conversation with my daughter. She's, I'm trying to get her tennis uh, uniform ready. Oh, yeah. So she's putting on her tennis uniform and she says to me, she's like, mom, I don't really like these tennis uniforms. I saw a girl with the ones they had on last year and I really like those better. These aren't flattering. Mm. And I said to her, <laughs> I said, your your body's an instrument, not an ornament. Yes. <laughs> I just said that to her this morning. And she's like, oh. But I said, oh, I no, I'm it. serious. I'm like, I'm trying to help you to understand, like, because oh, yeah. I've been reading this book. And yes. I'm like, I, it, my paradigm is shifting. I'm and so I'm glad. starting to think about it in, in completely different ways. I'm so glad. And and, and there was another uh I was thinking about this too. We're, there was a while back where I had a sister-in-law. So like I said, there, there's eight girls in my Oof. family and I, two sister-in-laws, two boys. And, um, they, I remember the one sister-in-law said at one point, like, I'm just so sick of you all, all you sisters talking about how the way you look all the time. It's ridiculous because we're not, we, we, none of us had really, have really struggled with, yeah. with weight or, 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 and, and, and I just grew up not really in that mode. Like, I don't even remember having a scale in our house. Good. Yeah. Like, I, it just wasn't a thing we, we worried about and we weren't, we didn't watch much TV. Yeah. Magazines weren't like a thing in our house. And Amazing. so it wasn't until later on, as an adult, here we are having babies in her, and like you, mm-hmm. you, so you talked about having, what do you, what do you call it? Like a, oh, a disruption. A disruption. Yeah. That's it. A body you, image disruption. A disruption. And all of a sudden we just, it was something we were all athletic. We playing yep. sports, doing all these things. I just personally never thought about it mm-hmm. much. And then it was, I started having babies and it was like, I don't look the way I did. Yeah. And I'm, kind of having a moment and and your body becomes the source of so much talk like especially for pregnant women and postpartum women your body becomes the number one topic of conversation like you don't even exist inside of it you talk about oh you don't even look pregnant from the back or oh you lost that weight so quickly or are you having twins are you sure you're not having twins (laughs) you look huge we talk about women's bodies in the most objectifying ways uh, it, yeah, that is just so maddening. But yes, that postpartum and uh, like period when you're growing a baby inside of you is one of these times where all of a sudden your relationship with your body is shaken and you have to decide how to cope. And through the work of body image resilience, we help people kind of take a path that serves them more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, I, li- this this conversation is just it's so important. Um, let's talk about those steps to resilience. Yeah. Um, let's, let's get into that when we come right back. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back here with Dr. Lexi Kite. Um, she she wrote an incredible book with her sister, and it is called, which I love, by the way, that you wrote it with your sister, because yeah. again, 
All my sisters. So mm-hmm. great. Uh, more than a body. Your body is an instrument, not an ornament. And um, just just incredible. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's really something I've thought a lot about. Oh, um, but you. let's get back into this. This idea of, of resilience and what are, what are the paths forward to resilience? Yes. Okay. So the first step we always share with people that we outline in the book and all of our work is that we want people to figure out where their body image comfort zone is right now. So how do you feel about your body right now? And the best way to get there is to answer this question. Write it down, write it in the notes on your phone, con- like record a little voice memo. When we ask you, how do you feel about your body? What would you say? What we found through our PhD research and the many years of research afterward on on girls and women is that the vast majority of people answer that question by describing how they look from the outside. So you say, how do I feel about my body? Well, I'm fatter than I used to be or I'm saggier than I used to be. I just had a baby. My pants don't fit like they used to. If I can get that under control, I think I'm going to feel fab again. Or, oh my gosh, I just I can't get this skin under control. My acne is just flaring up. I feel so self-conscious. So I don't feel great right now. People, especially women, describe themselves as if they are talking about their own worst fears about what they think somebody might be thinking when they look at them. It's called self-objectification. We want people to identify when self-objectification rears its ugly heads in their lives. So self-objectification is when your identity is literally split. Instead of just living your life, like you explain in your childhood, you didn't really think that much about your body. Instead of just living, uh, you're walking down the street, let's say. Instead of thinking about the weather, you need to call your mom, you haven't talked to her in a minute. You've got this mental task list in your head that says, I bet the people walking behind you think you look disgusting. Why don't you really should have washed your hair? Look how greasy your hair is. Or, oh my gosh, pull up your pants, get your leggings up above your muffin top, adjust yourself so you look as good as you did when you left the house this morning and felt okay to leave. We're constantly picturing ourselves living instead of just living. So many people that don't even think they're struggling with body image issues, when they learn about self-objectification, they realize that they are spending way too much time thinking about how they appear and evaluating themselves according to these fears instead of just living their lives. What we found in research and real life experience is that too many girls and women sit on the sidelines of their lives until they feel like they qualify to be looked at. So people, especially girls, sit out of P.E. and sports because they don't want to be sweaty. They don't want to go back to class all you know, sweaty and red faced. They don't want to wear the uniform. Women stop working out because they don't think they look right for the gym or they need to lose some weight until they can go to that class and see themselves with all of their peers, you know, in front of those mirrors. We stop raising our hands in class. We stop going up for those opportunities, promotions, events we want to do because we feel bad about how we look. And that is such a problem. So the baseline, the foundation for body image resilience is first to know where you stand. What is your comfort zone? And it is likely more uncomfortable than you realize. So the next step here, once you realize where you're at, is to be able to move forward by coping with your shame in ways that serve you, that help you to be more compassionate, more powerful, more of who you are meant to be, not less. So shame comes up in a million ways. 
Um, shame triggers can come up daily, even for people that are really far into practicing body image resilience. Even for me, you know, I've been an expert in this field for a long time, and yet I'm still a woman in a woman's body who has to live and breathe in this world where there's a billion messages telling me that fixing my body will fix my life. I know that's not true, but oof, the messages are everywhere. It's powerful. So the shame can come up in a million ways. It can come up from seeing a photo you don't like of yourself or from somebody making a comment about your body, like for good or bad. It can come up when you have a baby or a miscarriage, a divorce, a change in your relationship status, illness, injury, assault, a million ways that we get shaken, that disruption happens. For most people... We cope in ways that don't really help us. We we cope by going back to that disordered eating pattern of restricting our food and then binging because we're so hungry. Yeah. So many of us live in that, you know? We cope by by sitting out of that thing because this zit is too embarrassing. So I can't even go to the grocery store. Just give me a minute until I can get my skin under control or losing weight or getting that work done that you need to have done before you can go to that event or whatever the thing is. I think everybody can relate to that. But coping in those ways, it doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve humankind. It doesn't bring us more joy. When we sit on the sidelines of our lives until we feel like we can feel good enough to go out, that only makes our body image worse because the way to improve your body image is to do, is to show up, to be, to use your body as an instrument for your use, for your good, for your experience, not an ornament to be admired from the outside. So when we think about the ways that we are coping, let's try some better strategies. Uh, there's a million ways to do it. I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> no, let's talk about those strategies. I, yeah. I think that's, I mean, I think... The, the most important thing is to realize it. Like yeah. I said, I mean, I'm reading this book. I'm like every day I'm like having these moments where yeah. I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my goodness, that's a, you know, that's a self-objectification mm-hmm. thing that I'm doing. Yes. Or, you know, this is. And again, like it's something I didn't think I was I did. And now I'm most realizing that I do. Totally. So I think it's important to like, yeah. first of all, define it. Yes. Understand it. And then. We always want paths forward to yes. be better. So so what are some of those ways that, you know, strategies? Yes, that's to, what we're known for. To, to getting, getting through this. Yes. So there are a lot of people out there that teach media literacy or that um, – that help people that try to help people feel better about their bodies and their self-esteem. And they generally go about it in this one way. We see it all the time. And it sounds a little something like this. You are so beautiful just the way you are. If you had any idea how beautiful you were, flaws and all, you'd have the courage to get out there and live your life and change the world. And for a second, that feels good. You know, you want to feel like you're more beautiful than you think or that other people see you as as more beautiful than you are. But the problem is that that message is really fleeting. It's not actually solving our problems because we, when we reinforce beauty as our power, beauty as this defining force we have within us, we're forgetting about like who we are and what we can do that we're more than beautiful. You know, lots of guys have self-esteem issues too, including body image issues. And nobody's fixing them by saying, dude, you are so cute. If you had any idea how handsome you were, like you, you'd go out there, you just get out there and get it done. No, we laugh because we raise boys to believe that they are more than something to be looked at. They are not cut down by their beauty. 
They are not brought up by their beauty. They just are. We value them for other things, for who they are and what they can do. So in the work Lindsay and I do, the title of our book, Everything We Do, we want people to know they are more than a body. So body image resilience is showing up as more, even when that voice in your inside your head, even though those messages from the outside are trying to convince you otherwise, that your body is your most important um, part of you. So one of the one of the best and easiest, I say easiest, it's not easy, it's a lifetime of practice, but one of the best and most powerful ways um, to, to get back out there in your body as your home, the only one you've ever had, is to really internalize our mantra, my body is an instrument, not an ornament. We've heard it a million times. It might sound trite, but it is a paradigm shift that changes everything. So for you, what in what ways are you holding yourself back to the people the people listening to this? In what ways have you found that self-objectification keeps you from fully living your life? If your body is an instrument for your use, then your health and fitness goals change for one. Mm-hmm. Then you stop focusing on the scale, your dress size, your body mass index, because those are actually really objectified measures of health. They measure one thing from the outside, your measurements, but they don't actually tell you anything about your health and fitness. They don't tell you what your body can do. They don't tell you about your internal indicators of health, your blood pressure, your blood sugar, your cholesterol, your heart rate, uh, your your ability to, uh, what's the word? Stamina. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't tell you these things. And yet so many of us, especially women, we start workout regimens hoping that our bodies will change to fit aesthetic ideals. And then our bodies don't change in the ways we've been sold. They just don't. Then because we get frustrated. Then we get we, frustrated. We quit, we quit. And then we... <laughs> it's true. That is more and <laughs> a million percent. Yeah. That is what research shows. We feel like we are too fat to exercise, a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. We feel like if we don't fit this aesthetic ideal that we wanted, then give up, sit on the couch. That's not using your body as an instrument. Instead, your fitness goals can change. Your health goals can change. So for those that are able, because not everybody's able at all times in their lives, we all face illness and injury and all of those things. Our bodies are never perfect instruments. But the point here is that your body is yours for your experience. So how can your goals change? Maybe it's, I'm going to go on a walk around the block this many times this week. I'm going to take this many dance classes. I'm, I have a goal to lift this heavy of weights or swim this many laps, whatever the thing is. Those are goals that increase your endorphins. They mm-hmm. get those endorphins flowing. They make you happy. They increase your body confidence and your body image resilience because you prove to yourself again and again that your body is yours, that your body is good. If you are in a place where where maybe your abilities aren't where you'd hope they were, if you're disabled, if you're dealing with chronic illness, like so many of us are, your body is still your instrument for your good, for your experience. Your lungs are breathing. Your heart is beating. Your skin is protecting your organs. You, if you can speak, if you can write, communicate, text, reach out and hold somebody's hand, hug somebody, smile at them, create art sing. There are a million ways that we can express ourselves and really show our purpose in this world through our bodies as these amazing instruments. 
one of the best ways to increase your body image resilience is to get back inside your own body every time you feel that shame rise up. You can do that through, you know, if you're trying on a pair of jeans that are too tight or you're in a dressing room, this happens for many women, trying on clothing, getting ready to put on a swimsuit or go on vacation. You feel that shame rise up. Instead of coping with it in the ways you used to, you sit with it for a second. You name it. I'm feeling shame. I'm self-objectifying right now. I'm splitting from myself to look at myself from afar. I do not deserve to feel this shame. I do not. My body is an instrument, not an ornament. And then breathe yourself back into your body. Get out of that anxious cloud inside your mind and get back into your body. Feel your butt in your seat, your feet on the ground. Feel your heart beating. Feel what your what the temperature is. Smell the air. Use your senses to get back inside your home because it's yours and you can reclaim it. I think helping people to prioritize their own experience in their bodies instead of other people's experience looking at them is an absolute game changer and the perfect way to start this process. Yeah, I love that. I, 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 God, I'm just relating to so much that you're saying. Um, one thing I, I've tried to tell my kids I I decided I wanted to run a marathon yeah. um, a, a few years ago, and I'm like, just basically to do it. Awesome. And I thought, you know, I, I didn't expect at the end of it to feel almost a spiritual moment. Oh, yeah. When I got finished because I, and I told my kids, I'm like, I have never felt that I have overcome so like. I was so proud of my body. Yeah, I was so proud of oh my god of the mental fortitude it took to 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 do it. Mm-hmm. And then I think for me, uh, I, people always say, "Oh, you know, I I usually I run," and I, and they always say, "Oh, but you love running." And I say, "Um, actually, I mostly hate it, but." <laughs> What it does do for me is mentally. Oh, yeah. I mean, like you talked about the endorphins. I mean, if we think about exercise or, or, or using our bodies uh, in healthy ways. Oh, my gosh. The, the benefits are oh, miraculous. The, the mental health aspect of. Right. I always tell people I don't run for my physical health. Well, I do. But totally. I totally I, I do it for my mental health. I'm so with you. I, yeah. I can share a personal experience here because in our book, we're vulnerable. We ask people to be vulnerable. It, that's important here. Um during so I had a baby almost two years ago. And as I was emerging out of new motherhood and going back to work, the pandemic hit mm. and I had to come back home. And so I for a while there, we were all confined in our homes and I had had a hard uh, childbirth and I had been in pain for months. I was so excited to get back out there and then I couldn't. So I invested in a treadmill, a real privilege, and I started working out consistently um, for the first time in a while since way pre-pregnancy for my mental health. And my goals were not aesthetic. My goal I knew could not be to lose weight or change my body in any way. And two years later, a year and a half later, I am still actively working out. It has had the most amazing benefits in my life. I'm stronger than ever. My mental health is amazing. Everything in my life is good. I feel like I can meet challenges and my body hasn't changed a bit. If anything, I'm fatter than I was when I started. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. I'm fitter than ever. Yeah. It's, oh, so I wish great. people knew that. Using yeah. your body as an instrument is an absolute game changer. You say it so well. It feels like this miraculous, almost spiritual thing to get into that flow state. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, you. I re- 
running is so, I don't know why I like because I, I I I played sports and then when I didn't play sports yep. anymore because women don't do pickup basketball together. I know. And, although I did I did play volleyball with my sisters until we until we moved up here. But um, I, I think people underestimate the the value and and running. I see. Um, you see all body types, right? Go to a, any race. Yeah, you realize that race. runners don't just look one way. It's amazing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what to me. I'm like, I look around, and that's I don't know. Running has been such a metaphor for me be, for yes. life because I'm always like, you have no idea that the thinnest gal oh, yeah. can run past you, or like you can run past the thinnest gal totally, and she's as slow as can be. Yeah, and then. You see somebody that's that's not super thin, yeah. and they are like kicking your butt. Amen. Fitness and you're doesn't like, have a look. It has no bearing on on what your bodies can do, and it's anyway. It's it's totally. kind of beautiful. So let's let's continue this conversation when we come right back. Welcome back to the show. We are here with uh, Dr. Lexi Kite. Uh, her book, More Than a Body. Your body is an instrument, not an ornament. Um, just really incredible research and an incredible information and life changing uh, the way we think about our bodies and and especially as women. Um, let's talk. We have a unique culture here in our state. Oh, we do. So let's talk a little bit about that and how that maybe plays into some of this body image um, issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We couldn't write about this in particular in the book because it wasn't just for like a Utah audience. So it's fun to be able to kind of talk about this. And we've been talking about it for years. Um, It was kind of lucky and and on purpose that our doctoral research and our nonprofit was founded here in Salt Lake City. Um, Years ago when we were founding it in 2007, Forbes ranked Salt Lake City the vainest city in the nation because we have the most plastic surgeons per capita and we spend the most on beauty products and services um, compared to other cities of comparable size. Mm -hmm. And that was like shocking to people back in the day. And it wasn't as shocking to us just from the research we were doing. Um, What we were finding um, in starting out in Salt Lake City was that girls and women here do face some really serious body image challenges that aren't necessarily unique just to Salt Lake City. Um, But there are some factors here that do contribute to the objectification of women and our own pain. Um, A few of those, uh, there are plenty, not just like the plastic surgeons per capita and the med spas that are uh, very popular here, make a ton of money here. Um, but there are some cultural factors at play. One is that women in Utah have the most babies on average at the youngest ages. Mm. And so then things like the mommy makeover in quotes, these um, plastic surgery options for right after you have a baby and all the procedures that are targeted at new moms come into play here like nowhere else. The billboards we see on our freeways you don't see in any other major city. Uh, traveling across the country speaking uh, – on the book tour before that, we have never seen anything like the the billboards we see here that objectify women's bodies that tell us what we need to fix in order to be okay, um, to tell us what we can fix on our lunch break and be right back at work. Um, we also have women who are largely staying at home. We have a lot of households that have uh, one person employed and the other stays home. 
And so women who have kids in school have more time on their hands and are targeted with a bunch of these ideals. Uh, they they become kind of competitive. Not It's not innate to them, but there are a lot of uh, dollars at play in making sure that women feel like we're in competition with each other for limited resources that aren't actually limited. <laughs> Beauty, success, yeah. love, popularity, whatever the thing is. But we've been sold that these are limited. Mm. Um so there are some factors at play here. The other thing is within Mormonism, men and women get married really young, especially women. And the problem here is that then there does actually become competition for limited resources, you know? Right. Yep. Like for dating. Yeah. And that just really complicates things. On top of that, when um, we have a culture who is part of a patriarchal religion where Men ultimately have the power. That isn't just Mormonism. That's lots of institutions. That's lots of religions. Patriarchy is everywhere. But we do write about this, and it does resonate with people, that when men have the power to to speak, to be heard, to make decisions, um, to, be, to make promotion decisions, uh, whatever the thing might be, then women have to find their power elsewhere. And so many girls and women find their power in their beauty, in their bodies, in their sexual appeal. So our beauty becomes our currency. This happens in lots of cultures, and we are not immune to this here. Um, so when we are talking about this, so many women can resonate with this because they realize that they might have inadvertently believed some of these ideas, that their power comes through their bodies and their beauty, their appeal – I think we've all believed this to some degree. It's been sold to us and told to us in a million ways. And yet it is not true. These are not limited resources that we are competing for. We are not in competition. We are allies, not competitors. Mm. And so some of the work we need to do is not just seeing the objectification around us, but rooting it out of our own minds and our own lives. And that means really taking an inventory of not just the media we view and the social media we're scrolling through, the TV shows we're watching with our kids, because that is important, like taking that inventory and unsubscribing and muting and unfollowing the things that don't serve us, the things that only represent girls and women in one way, that feature men and boys and male characters doing everything to move the plot forward when girls are just kind of like the pretty side piece, yep. which happens so regularly. But it also means that we need to curate our environments that we live in, how we talk to each other as family members, how we talk at work, you know, in the yeah. break room, the ways we bond with each other as women, we can be more and we can be the perfect example to everybody else out there that they can be more too mm. when we compliment people for more, you know, when we empower people to speak up, when there's that woman in the meeting who is too afraid to say what you know she's going to say and she could say so well, you encourage her. You second her. You amplify her voice. You do whatever you can to help elevate the status of women in a world where we're so often relegated to the sidelines, sometimes through our own doing, through feeling that shame, but too often through the internalization of so many messages that have convinced us that we are bodies first and humans second. Mm. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit um before we end. I want to I want to talk a, a little bit about dress code. 
Oh yeah. So, <laughs> so my daughter is notorious for she's she's very outspoken. I don't know where she gets it. Love it. <laughs> but um, she always says, you know, mom, they the boys can wear whatever they want. They can. And we are, you know, we get dress coded for this and dress coded for that, and 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 she just gets really ticked. Let's talk about the message we're sending with. Yes. With dress code. This is an important and very popular topic we've been uh, posting about on social media for like more than 10 years. Um, and it is so important. What I will say up front is that when we believe that we are protecting girls from sexualization by enforcing very strict dress codes, we are actually doing the opposite. We are enforcing their sexual objectification. Because when you are focusing in on the inches of girls' bodies that are showing or not showing, when your dress code is a million miles long for the girls, you're talking about, this can't be tight. It can't be form-fitting. If you raise your arms, you should not be able to show any skin. You should have this many inches of your leg showing, but no more than that. We are breaking girls down into parts that become sexualized threats to onlookers. We are asking girls to bear the entire burden for the thoughts of everybody around them. Mm. The adult leaders in the room were trying to protect from their own thoughts, from the boys who are sitting next to them in class that were trying to protect from being distracted. Oh my goodness, the burden we <laughs> ask girls yeah. to carry to believe that they are beautiful, but don't be too beautiful. To believe yeah. that their sexual appeal is important, but don't you let it be too important. We we do this by turning girls into sexual objects when instead what we promote in our book and in our work is a real paradigm shift. That shift is that when we're talking about dress codes, which can be important, we can institutionalize a code that serves everybody. Um, the way to do that is to prioritize the wearer of the clothing, not the viewer of the clothing or the viewer of the person in the clothing. We need to prioritize how girls and women feel. Yes, girls and women are hit with a barrage of sexualized ideals straight from the fashion industry, you know, that give us very few options for how to dress that don't revolve around completely accentuating our sensual appeal. Mm. But also, we set these standards for... These real double standards that, you know, girl volleyball players in high school should not wear pants, should barely wear shorts. We wear spandex bloomers. The boys get full baggy shorts. Sorry, that's just the way it is. But girls, if you think you can sit in a desk and have an inch of your stomach showing, ooh, you're in for it. We're going to send you home. Instead, when we prioritize how girls feel, we like at home, you can do this at home by what I do with my five-year-old. How does this outfit feel? Can you stretch? Can you do some lunges for me? Can you jump? Are you comfortable? Is it soft? When we prioritize how girls feel, we ask them to consider themselves instead of how they are viewed from the outside. Are you wearing something that will help you not be distracted by how you look when you're taking this test? Are you wearing something where you can just be comfortable while you're kicking that soccer ball and not be worried about adjusting everything at all times to be able to look good to the outside? When we reprioritize that, then girls can get back inside their own bodies. And we give boys and men and onlookers in general their power back. Mm -hmm. We tell them that we are all bodies. We are all more than bodies. That we can do more than view people as sexual threats and distractions to us. We're in control of our own thoughts. 
We're in control of our own destiny, as cheesy、mm-hmm. as it is. And when we can humanize people, including girls that we think are too pretty or too distracting or too fat or too ugly to be dressing like that, we give them their humanity back.、Mm. We give them their power back, which we all deserve. And I think we forget sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I I love that. It's it's a powerful message, and one I think was brought out during the Olympics. Oh yeah, uh huh. I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, and it really did make me think. Why do they have to wear that? Right, I know. Why can't they choose what they want to wear? Why does the uniform have to? I mean, who's making these rules? I know, <laughs> right? Viewership. Yeah. It is all about views. It's why beach volleyball, why the women are required to wear those teeny bikinis, even though they don't like pulling the wedgie out、yes. of their butt every time. They say it themselves. It is so maddening, and yet the Olympics were this perfect opportunity to talk about it. People's eyes were opened in a new way. It's stuff we've been posting forever, but being able to nail it down on the Olympics on why in gymnastics are the girls required to only wear that little leotard, yeah, and the men wear full pants with feet, right? It is maddening. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and it's so funny because you you sit there and think like. You don't think about it. I know until、yeah. somebody says it, and I thought, I know because I mean I did gymnastics、mm-hmm. and I hated those stupid、right? little leotards. I know I hated them. I didn't try out for volleyball, which I would have been good at because I was not going to be caught dead in, in those, that, those itty tiny bitty, bloomers.、Yeah. I'm not going to do it. I was、oh, already、yeah. self conscious of my thighs.、Yeah. I know so many girls and women who were held back from doing the sports they would love to do、yeah. because of those sexist requirements on them. And it just、yeah. it comes back to the fact that like when your body is an instrument, not an ornament, your whole world opens up. And so when you do have your power back, when we are adults with the capacity to choose what we do with our bodies, being able to compete, even with yourself in running, you know, a new personal record, being able to do a pickup sport with your friends or play with your kids, swim anyway, even though you're self conscious. I'm going to Florida tomorrow. I said I'm fatter than I've ever been. I am, and there is that voice in my head that says, "Oh, you know,、oh, there's gonna be there's gonna be women looking much better than me on the beach." But you know what? I love swimming. I love the beach. I love the water more than anything in the whole world. And I will not be held back by these unreal ideals about my body that have nothing to do with me. I deserve to be in that water, playing with my daughter and my husband. And I'm going to be out there doing it and having so much fun. And I think that the takeaway for everybody listening, in a world where you should truly believe that you are more than a body, is that I want you to do the thing that scares you when you think about it, or that you've been holding yourself back from. Yeah. Do the thing anyway. I don't care how small or big it is. If it's just like leaving the house without makeup, you know. If it's just going out with your friends, going on that vacation you've wanted to go on, going up for that volunteer opportunity or leadership position you didn't think you wanted to do until you lost some weight or got Botox that you've been meaning to get or whatever. When you do the thing anyway, you build that body image resilience muscle that tells you you are good just the way you are. And as you do the things, the endorphins rush. You get the positive feedback from doing the thing and the confidence that comes with it, and that muscle becomes much easier to flex over time. All of a sudden, when that shame trigger comes up, it is much easier. You get this little. Click that says, "Oh, I feel that shame rising up. I do not deserve to feel this way. This is not me. I am more than a body. I'm coming back inside."、Mm-hmm. And then you do the thing anyway.、Yeah. Think of how the world would benefit 
from girls and women and all people just showing up anyway. It just, I it. oh, I do this work for that purpose. Yeah. Oh, so great. I So interesting because in this role that I'm in right now, there, I've had these internal dialogues yeah. about um, expectations. Oh, yeah. About who people think I should be or how I should act or what I should look like. I don't envy you. Uh, it, it's it's <laughs> an interesting one. And I remember somebody real early on said to me, well, you do you feel like you have to like everybody's watching you and so you have to like be you you can't just run out of the house and I'm like I don't know I I almost I'm that rebellious I love that <laughs> yes that I'm like mm, no Ugh. I'm gonna go ahead and throw on my hat and go to the grocery store without Thank makeup you. on because you don't know the power you have though <laughs> okay. like part of this doing this work is being an example to other people that aren't quite brave enough to do it anyway to show up anyway. So you on this platform being able to do this, you can show people to just show up. That is yeah. so powerful. Well, and I think we need to do that for each other. I think I think we can give permission to each other to say, oh, yeah. you know what? Nobody we're we're done with judging. That's totally. so dumb. It's, it's so like, dumb. <laughs> like, it is so Can we us. just be done with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just Amen. move on. So anyway, this has just been a really, really incredible conversation, Lexi. I really appreciate your yeah. time and, and being here with us and really sharing these these very powerful insights from your research and your life's work. And so I appreciate yeah. you and, and your sister and all you've done. Um, please, um, anybody, men, women, all of us need to understand this This paradigm shift. Um, You're more than a body. Your body is an instrument, not an ornament. So thank you again for being Mm -hmm. here with us today. Thank you. You can find Dr. Lexi Kite and Dr. Lindsay Kite on Instagram at beauty underscore redefined and morethanabody.org. Thanks for being a friend.